Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. It tells a story of how Israel rejects Samuel and the recent history of being ruled by judges and their desire for a king. And we read this from 1 Samuel 8, verse 1 through 9. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As I have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day forsaking me. And serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them. Will claim as his rights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are an impatient people. Obsessed with immediate gratification. We have grown accustomed to getting what we want Typically now and not later. Whenever Katie and I uh, watch a show or a movie at home and have a question about what we're watching, our phones provide us with the answers right away. Usually it's, uh, you know, I, that actor seems familiar. Where have I seen him before? Oh, he was on that other show we like, but as a bad guy. That's how we know him. If we run out of some essential at home, uh, we instantly order more. We can do that on our phones, usually with free shipping. If we want something to eat, a meal could be delivered within the hour, or we could get something fast on the way home. Unless we find something worth our time and energy, we choose the path of least resistance, even if that means settling for less. A 1972 study testing delayed gratification in children reached a a similar conclusion. So this procedure was fairly simple. So a child was given a mar- one marshmallow, okay, one like big marshmallow, and told if they waited 20 minutes without eating it, they could have a second. Now, the adult then left the room and observed the child's behavior. So their initial theory was that the reward in front of them would inspire kids to wait by reminding them of the bigger goal. Look, you get two if you can just wait for 20 minutes. Uh, but the opposite actually occurred. How many of y'all could have guessed that? Yeah, a couple of y'all. All All right. So rather than motivating kids to wait, the marshmallow became a source of temptation. So uh, here's just a summary of what some of the kids did. So a few kids waited. There's like maybe two or three waited, but most did not. Uh, Some ate it the moment the adults left the room, like as the door was closing, they ate it. Uh, One girl uh, tried to get around the rules. She licked the entire thing uh, because she said that wasn't technically eating. Some ate it. While the adult was giving instructions, they just weren't paying attention. They're like, this marshmallow. 
One boy, uh, this is the one, the kid that I liked, he uh, fell asleep staring at the marshmallow uh, and was overjoyed to find scientists giving him two treats at the end of his nap. He was like, oh, this is, this is terrific. Despite the promised reward, right, most chose to eat the marshmallow right away, even though they knew that there was something better, even though they were promised something better. Uh, as we see in our scripture today, the Israelites would have eaten the marshmallow first. Faced with a choice between fully living into a relationship with the Lord or being like their neighbors, God's people chose to settle for the immediate gratification of having a king. Now, the time the elders visit Samuel, Israel had been ruled by a series of divinely appointed judges for about 400 years. Now, since their deliverance from Egypt, the people had lived securely more or less, in the promised land under the direct supervision of their Lord and the leaders that he chose. Whenever an internal crisis or external threat arose, the Lord chose individuals to respond on his behalf. From the time Joshua died and Saul became king, 16 judges stepped forward to remind the people of God's promises, to repel invading armies or confront corruption from within. Many of them were mighty warriors like Joshua and Samson. Others were unexpected. Gideon was called by God hiding from a conquering army in an empty wine press. Ehud was chosen because being left-handed made him a better assassin. So if you were left-handed, you might make a better assassin. Deborah rallied the people against the Canaanites. And despite the unusual circumstances, this system worked. As nations around them rose and fell, Israel prevailed not through an army or a king, but a relationship with Yahweh. They trusted him. Pastor Eugene Peterson wrote during the time of Judges, the central focus for the people was not in a political office, but in an act of worship where God was continuously acknowledged as their ruler and savior. The sanctuary where God was worshipped, not a palace where a king was enthroned, was the visible symbol of government in Israel during this time. For centuries, the people responded with the confidence David later wrote about in Psalm 74. Enemies might do their worst, but God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth and his people. But as the last Judge Samuel grew older, the elders and people of Israel had come to view this current arrangement as intolerable. They didn't want to be ruled by judges anymore. The sons of the previous judge of Samuel were corrupt. They didn't like them. They didn't want them. They wanted a king just like their neighbors. Now, at first glance, this change of heart almost seems wise. Israel did live in a dangerous world, and they did face an uncertain future. Samuel was older, and no one had been called to take his place. From their perspective, they needed something more proactive than judges reacting to the latest crisis. A king could actually unify the tribes. He could set up a government, maybe even an army that reliably protected the people beyond the latest threat. The Israelites wanted the instant credibility and immediate respect a king would demand from their neighbors. They didn't want to wait for the Lord to select a judge. They wanted something now. 
They wanted something right away. Their request for a king isn't exactly wrong either. God promises in Deuteronomy 17 that one day a king would rule Israel. But their desire to choose what they wanted on their timeline reveals how sin had eroded their trust and God's promises and even his character. Sadly, the Israelites were just the latest group of people to fall into a pattern of mistrust and doubt. Starting way back in Genesis in the garden, humanity consistently wandered away from God toward lesser things they thought would bring them life, but actually brought them closer to death. Adam and Eve ignored God's commands and they lost paradise. Abraham and Sarah made their own plans to stay safe and nearly got themselves killed. Jacob cheated everyone in his life to get ahead and was always on the run. The people complained in the wilderness after their deliverance about everything, including the the food that God sent from heaven. Those same people refused to enter the promised land because the native people looked like giants. Their demand for a king was just the latest symptom of the same disease. When the Lord hears the people's request, he replies that they haven't rejected Samuel or his leadership, but they rejected God himself. They've been doing it for a long time. John Wesley summarized their rejection like this. The people could have had the immediate government of Yahweh himself and the eternal presence of his kingdom, which would have been the great honor, safety, and happiness of his people had they hearts to prize it. Like a broken compass, the sin within them kept pointing their hearts in the wrong direction. This spiritual confusion can be seen even more clearly in their response to Samuel's warning about what life would be like under the rule of a human king. Two important things to remember here. The first is that the last official king Israel had was Pharaoh. That is their most recent king. It was Pharaoh. Much of their history and identity rested on how God rescued his children from an unjust king that made him his slaves. They are asking for a king partly because they don't want to be conquered and enslaved again. Second, God specifically warns them in 1 Samuel 8, right after these verses, that this king will always, always fail to live up to their expectations and in the end, lead them to ruin. Previewing the monarchy, God tells them that this king will take his, uh, their men to be his soldiers, their women to be his wives, their flocks and a harvest to feed his court and army, and their wealth to keep things running. Eventually, this king will repeat history and make them his slaves. But even hearing all of this, their desire remained unchanged. Despite the risk, the people wanted a king and they wanted one Now, now sometimes it's easy to look at these stories and think, well, those people just didn't have the full picture. They didn't understand everything that was being promised. But we are like the Israelites in two main ways. We do the same thing as they do. First, sin makes us spiritually lazy. Following God, pursuing his presence, discerning his will, becoming more like him isn't easy. 
Following Jesus leads to eternal life, but it requires much of us. Becoming clear reflections of our Lord is often a difficult, often painful process requiring both time and discipline. Letting go of our own self-centered tendencies and submitting to the ways of Jesus isn't something we can naturally do on our own. None of us drift into better physical health and none of us drift into spiritual health either, nor do we accidentally become more like Jesus. Faith is a free gift from God achieved on the cross for his children, but following Jesus and this terribly confused world takes intentional effort and commitment. And deep down, we don't really want to follow that. Apologist G.K. Chesterton said it like this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Eugene Peterson theorizes the Israelites simply didn't want to put in the work necessary to take hold of the promises that God had already given to them. He writes, this kind of thing, looking for alternatives to a life of faith and freedom have been going on among these people ever since they were delivered from Egyptian slavery. They were a free people, free to live in faith before a merciful, saving God. But a free life of faith lived in the vast and gracious mysteries of God is a large, demanding life. Let me say that again. A free life of faith lived in the vast and gracious mysteries of God is a large, demanding life. It is far easier to live small, reduced to the visible and tangible requirements of petty gods and tyrant kings. Their leaders from Moses to Samuel kept trying to get them to live large. They preferred to live small. We have the same kind of tendency in our own life. God has invited us to step into a life of unadulterated goodness, where as we bless our neighbors, the kingdom of God begins to transform all this brokenness into something beautiful, infused with kindness and love. But we say, no, we'd rather do something else. And that leads us to our second point. Sin makes us spiritually short-sighted. Over and over again, the Israelites fail to see the bigger picture. Focusing on how a king improves their reputation, they forgot the larger reward God promised if they would just trust in him. And we do the same. We forget that we have been designed for a greater purpose. And so we never step forward into the abundant and radical life that Jesus offers. C.S. Lewis describes our problem like this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is handed to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are like 
a marathon runner who fails to remember the glory of the finish line. And we stop following God after just a mile or two, content to please ourselves with small things and half-hearted dreams. But God invites each of us into something bigger. We are adopted as children of the living God. We have each been called to a greater mission than mere self-fulfillment. And his kingdom, our lives, are so much more than a generic search for happiness because in Jesus, we find eternal significance. We have been chosen to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people in a broken world. When he joins his life to ours, we are invited to help restore broken things, to renew relationships and communities and step into the dark places to bring the light of his love and grace. We are invited, we are commanded even, to bring peace and hope and joy to a world beaten down by despair and fear. Because when God takes us by the hand, our lives are unleashed to live and to love as he intends. Life in Jesus is so much greater than the life we choose on our own. The trouble, of course, is that we still have a tendency to choose our own way. It's a lot easier to eat the first marshmallow and hard to wait for the second. But the good news for both the Israelites and us is that even when we run from the Lord, our God comes looking for us anyway. Even when we choose the confinement of our small little worlds, Jesus comes to bring us the joy and the wonder of his kingdom. And Jesus, we are invited into his kingdom by the king himself. And the great news for us that the Israelites missed is that the human king is that Jesus is not anything like the human king the Israelites desired. And the warning that Samuel gives to the people, the Hebrew verb take, is used six times in eight verses. Their king, the king they wanted, would only take. They would take their joy, their hope, eventually their lives. But in Jesus, we find a God, we find a king who gives. He gives his own life. He gives his blessings. He gives his joy, his peace, his presence to his children. Jesus is the perfect King, he frees our hearts, not just to seek his kingdom, but live into it here and now. As king, Jesus comes to rule in each of us, giving us not just a glimpse or a taste, but an open door into heaven itself. He gives us himself so that we might have life in abundance, life that doesn't just fill, but flood our hearts and our souls and our minds spilling into the world around us. In him, we are free to step forward into a completely new pattern of life. When his rule takes effect, our hearts and minds become more like his. Our choices start to resemble his own. Our words echo his. Our relationships take on an edge of gentleness and our priorities start to shift. Our hearts ache for the forgotten. Our compassion grows for the forsaken. When Jesus becomes our king, our entire lives are slowly but surely, remarkably and noticeably transformed. The powerful 
news, the good news for us is that Jesus might not be the king we would have chosen because following him is hard. But he is the king that we need. He is the king that God sent. So this morning and every morning, every day for the rest of our lives, praise the Lord for our king. When his grace gives us everything we need and more. Hallelujah. Amen.